Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 207 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. This week I was joined by a photographer from Kittery, Maine, Adam Woodworth. Adam was a guest on the show way back on episode 45 and a lot has changed in his life since then. Adam is a master of night photography and prides himself on capturing scenes in a more natural style. He also recently returned from a cross-country trip in his RV, which was suddenly interrupted by the emergence of COVID. We also talked about Adam's new book, The Night Sky Photography from First Principles to Professional Results, and his hate-hate relationship with social media. Over on Patreon this week, Adam divulges his secrets for Facebook marketing and how he has leveraged it to grow a massive audience for his tutorials and masterclass on night photography. Just an FYI, there is some profanity in this week's episode, so you have some youngsters with you. Maybe save this one for later. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Adam Woodworth, it's awesome to have you back. Hey, dude, thanks for having me back again. Of course, it's man. It's uh, This is fun doing this over video. We get to see each other's really manly, <laughs> sexy beards, yes. which is awesome. And bald heads. <laughs> right? And, and terrible backgrounds and yeah, everything involved with that. Right, exactly. It's uh, a glimpse into our personal realities, which can be somewhat depressing for me anyway, but... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're in a weird spot with that whole having to come back from our trip and then end up in a weird house that's just temporary and everything. So yeah, and I'm a I live in a really small house, so like my bedroom is my office, and it's also my exercise room. So it's just yeah. a, it's just a disaster. And I really have as I want I want to get like a really cool like studio space for doing podcasts and videos and YouTube stuff. And it literally doesn't exist in my house, so it's impossible. (laughs) Next house. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, you know, if if someone feels some pity on me, they can always write me a big check. Yeah, right? Yeah, I could use one too, if you find one. (laughs) Yes. I'll split it with you. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, that's uh, the perils of being a photographer, I guess. Yeah, tell me about it. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, so... You were on the podcast a while back. I want to say let's almost three years ago now. Yeah, I think. It was and uh, I'm sure a lot. I think it was 2018. 2018, maybe 2018. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot has changed since then. So that's for sure. But <laughs> but for people that have didn't listen to that episode, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh so geez, I'm from Maine. I live in Lubeck, Maine, right now, which is the easternmost town in the country. Nice. Um, I'm from Kittery originally, which is the southernmost town in Maine before you get to New Hampshire. Uh, so I went from one into the other. Um, but I've been doing photography since, I mean, on and off since I was really young, really. Um, but I didn't really get into it until uh, tw- uh, 2000, and, what the heck year was that? Uh, eight, maybe? Okay. I think 2008. Nice. I did some video stuff for a while. I did short films for a while. And, um, uh, made a couple like gangster films and went to film festivals and really stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole story there if you want to get into all that stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, I ended up beating Tony Soprano in a film festival once with a what? little gangster film. <laughs> my, 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 the only like big thing I can say about my little film career. Um, but that was, so I like, 
I was, uh, was in, in and out of like photography since I was like a teenager or even earlier than that. And then when I was a teenager, I got into a little more and then kind of didn't do much with it for a while. And then I got into filmmaking and just videography just taking video of stuff. Sure. Um, before I got back into still photography and I was doing, um, video of, uh, comics, stand-up comics at this club in Cambridge, Massachusetts in Harvard square, like literally, you know, steps from Harvard. Um, and it was a club there that was kind of well-known in the comedy scene and like Conan O'Brien's like producers used to go there and find people. And there's big people used to come up through there and, you know, um, Stephen Wright's been there and Louis CK, not that it's, um, <laughs> a bit of a weird name to bring up now, I guess, but, um, lots of people come through there. And so I used to go there a lot and just watch comedy. Cause I used to love, I still love stand up comedy. And then when I got a video camera, I wanted to record, just play around with it. So I was like, Hey, do you mind if I come here and just record the comics? And the comics are like, yes, please make us DVDs. So we can send them to, you know, um, comedy central and late night or whatever. So they can try to get on TV shows and stuff. Um, so I, I did that for a while and I made, I would like record a set and then make a DVD. And then some guys would like make me put multiple sets of theirs on a DVD or do like a clip edit from a short film they were in or something like that. So they could send a reel off. Um, and one of those guys ended up having his own Netflix special a little while ago. So he's, he's come far with it. Uh, Mike Kaplan. And um, anyway, that all, I did that for a while and I got into filmmaking from that because of the whole video thing. And then one of my films was a little gangster film that played in this terrible film festival in Hollywood that like anyone who had a film that wanted to submit to this festival could get into it. Okay. <laughs> and so you could get an excuse to go out to Hollywood and say your film screened in Hollywood. And then every film was such a dumb festival. Every film was like nominated for whatever category it was in <laughs> for like the award session. Right. And it was just a total like bogus thing. Cause I think the previous year was the first year they had it. And like the people who ran the film festival, their film won the film festival. So okay. I think it was like just a scam to get them to be noticed. So anyway, I did that. And then it w- played in this little film festival in um, Plymouth, Massachusetts, like the Plymouth international or independent film festival, whatever it was, which I think is defunct now. But there was this, it was my gangster, my little gangster film and this other little short gangster film, like 20 or 30 minute long film that had a huge cast in it, like Tony, like um, James Gandolfini, Lou Gossett Jr., uh, Steve McQueen's grandson, Joe Montana, um, other names I'm forgetting. Just huge cast. Yeah, like this huge, huge cast for this. But it, the film was like, it was James Gandolfini played uh, like the ghost of a gangster <laughs> at this bar. And this bar was like haunted. And I don't remember the whole story, but it was, they had that <laughs> was part of it. He was like a ghost a gangster ghost guy. And so it was like my gangster film and his, that gangster film and another film all aired in the same session. And then the awards ceremony, which is like this tiny little film festival. So there's like, you know, 50 people or something like that. Um, (laughs) They go, you know, best short film goes to me. So I, so I can say I beat Tony Soprano. (laughs) Or it's the way I say it, because I think it sounds funny, but um, that's awesome. It was a, it was an experience. So from that whole thing was the time when like really good video cameras were becoming more affordable and we were attaching 35 millimeter lenses to them to get that really film depth of field. Sure. Um, So they were like, not only were they more affordable, they were like higher quality. They were um, 24 frames per second, like film. 
Right. And you could you could attach a 35 mil- millimeter lens to a video camera, but it was through this like crazy mechanism. Like it wasn't built into the camera. You had to attach basically another lens and then put the lens on top of that lens. Um, and so that got me really into depth just because of the depth of field you could literally get with using like my old Canon FD lenses. I just kind of, oh, this is fun. So I started recording like random crap just because I liked the look of it. And then I got a friend of mine had a Nikon D70 he had just bought. So I bought a D80 because I think by the time I went looking for them, they were up to the D80. And then I got hooked on photography again. And then that just kind of bloomed from there. Like I, I left video behind basically. And then I started doing anything you could do with photography, you know, street photography, portraits, landscapes, cars. Uh, buildings, urban, whatever. And then um, eventually got into landscape photography. And I was living in Boston at the time, and I moved back to New Hampshire. And um, now I'm in Maine, of course. Um, so I do most of my stuff is now done in Maine or like the this area, you know, New England, Canada. So I have to ask, I mean, it seems like video would be a much more profitable way to sustain Probably. your... <laughs> <laughs> to, to do, I mean, I know there's a there's been a quite a few notable, really good landscape photographers in your area that only do video now. Like yeah. you don't even see photos anymore because they just they just do video projects, and it seems like yeah. a great way to stay. I don't know financially secure as a photographer, but it sounds like you went the other direction. Do you have any regrets for yeah. that? <laughs> no, I like. I mean, the, I don't know what people are doing to make money doing video stuff these days, but it was, it's usually like being hired for a project or something. Right. Um, in my case, back in the day, it was like people wanted you to do weddings. I did, I didn't do a wedding, but you know, um, that was one way to make money was to videotape weddings, um, events and stuff. Sounds awful. I videotaped a concert once. That was pretty cool because we had three cameras. Um, I had two guys and me and then i edited all three streams all three feeds together with um back in the day final cut pro when it was wasn't a piece of crap and you could do like multi-cam editing in it and that was pretty fun doing a concert um but i yeah i I don't even know how you would even approach making money in video and i've been i'm actually a software engineer is what i do for a living and what i've done since i was a teenager like i think i had my first software job and i was 17 or something like that yeah that's right so you so you don't even really rely on photography for your income it's more of kind of just a passion slash supplemental i mean similar to me i think yeah it's definitely you know a passion for sure obviously and then in 2017 late 2017 i decided to try going full-time with photography and this is actually my uh this was like i had just come back from like four and a half months on the road uh, with my first long road trip in my little, my first little RV. And I went from Maine down to like Colorado, Utah and then up through Canada to Alaska and back. Right. Um, I, I came back that's... with a newer RV. Yeah, we talked <laughs> about it in the last remember... podcast. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and at the end of that, I, so I came back to Maine, I'm at my girlfriend's house and we're like, we just, I had decided to move to Lubeck because I love it here and she had a friend here that she wanted to hang out with and stuff. And so, and we both enjoyed it here. So we, we moved here, left our jobs. <laughs> um, I mean, my job is remote, so I could have kept it, but I wanted to go full time photography and do workshops and stuff. 
but like ultimately like her job didn't work out here. And then, um, my, you know, I was really trying to make money doing like more videos and stuff. And it's just becoming harder to make money at videos with all the YouTube stuff. So, and then I do workshops, but like, I don't, I just haven't really capitalized on that as much as I could, I guess. I don't really like flying that much. So it's kind of hard to do workshops all over the world when you don't really want to get on a plane that often. Right. Um, so I, that's why I have my RV. Um, uh, and I'm just more, you know, I'm like an introvert uh, computer programmer, you know, I'm more comfortable like sitting in front of a computer than I am around a group of people sometimes. Totally. So. You know, but sometimes, you know, sometimes it works out really well and you have really good workshops and everyone has fun, you know, so it gets challenging. So I ended up going back to, you know, not a full-time job. I have a contract that's kind of like an open door contract with my old company. Oh, nice. And I do, you know, so like I think a few months after I I left, I came back for like a, a little contract and then I would take the summer off and do workshops, you know, and I'd make money at workshops and I wouldn't have to work software for a while and then i'd worked software over the winter or something um so it actually worked pretty well um but then we were so let's see fast forward to uh 2019 september 2019 we were in lubeck we decided to get in get a bigger rv like a slightly bigger one and drive across country together so we were going right. to drive to alaska and spend the summer of 2020 in alaska what could go wrong in 2020? Right. Yeah, right. What could go wrong with that plan? <laughs> so we got to um, uh, Texas. Let's see. We started in Maine, obviously. went to Canada. And, and then by Thanksgiving, we were in Tennessee um, at um, Linda's sister's house. And then by Christmas or no, by thanks, uh, by December, we were in Texas. And we spent like a month at one campground, just kind of like relax. And I had to get some work done. And we spent like a week in Big Bend after that, like in early January. And then my birthday was in um, mid-January, January 16th. And we were in uh, El Paso, Texas. And we were going to head over to White Sands um, and that area. And I wanted to go to up to Cloudcroft, New Mexico, which I don't know if you've been to Cloudcroft. But it's this no, little mountain that town. At? So you know where White Sands is, obviously. And yeah. Do you know Alamogordo, the town there? Yeah, yeah. So, like, if you go in, like, if you drive east from White Sands, and instead of going to Alamogordo, you just go straight up into the mountains um, that you can see on your way into Alamogordo, those, there's Cloudcroft, this little tiny town up there. Okay, um, okay. And it's this beautiful mountain pass you have to take to get up there. And you get up, it feels like the Wild West or something, like an old Western scene, because it's just very, like, this the way the buildings are and stuff. Um, and it's funny, because you're at, in a desert and all that, and then, like, a few minutes later, you're up however many thousands of feet um, with snow and it's very cold um, trees, nice. you know, totally different climate all of a sudden. So that was, we were wanting to go there. And on the way out of El Paso, the last block, like literally like half a mile or less from the border with New Mexico, I was turning a corner and Linda was like, watch out for that cat. And I was like, what cat? I couldn't see a cat. There was like a blind spot in the RV and there was a cat in the middle of the street. And I couldn't see it. And so I dot, I just like, I don't hit it. I don't even come close to it, but she's clear. Cat is clearly distraught, like trying to get people's attention or something. So I pull over into this parking lot and, and we're like, what the hell do we do? So I go out and go talk, go look, go over to the cat on the other side, on the other side of the street. And it's like going crazy and just wants attention. And it's like really skinny, but it seems in good health. And we're like, what the heck is going on here? We've, so we must be a stray. 
So there's like, and it's a weird spot. Like we're in the middle of nowhere, like on the edge of El Paso. Like there's like a sketchy bar half a block away. And then there's like a nice steakhouse next to that bar. And we're at the corner where that is. And there's like a weird little motel or, or like a nice hotel. But then there's like nothing. It's just like desert and like wasteland around it. It's a weird spot. So I go in and talk to the ladies, uh, lady who runs the steakhouse. She said, oh, yeah, someone dumped the cat here like a week or two ago. And it's like a, apparently a known dumping spot where people just let their pets out. They don't want anymore. God, who does and she's that? like, I'm going to I was going to take her tonight. But if you guys want her, you can take her. So and we had left our cat back in Maine because when we got her, she was great in the RV. But then she got sick every time. And so it was like really heartbreaking that we had to give her up because she just wouldn't reacclimate to it. So that really sucked. And so we were really happy to have this cat. And we were like, oh, crap, I hope she works out. And she was fine. And the rest of the trip, she worked out fine. She was a champ in the car or in the RV. And she rode with us all the way from there to um, back to Maine. So now she's here. In That's Maine. awesome. Yeah. So I got a cat for my 40th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> in El Paso, Texas. In El Paso, Texas. Yeah, of all places. Yeah. <laughs> rescued her from the streets of El Paso. That's cool. Um, and that was like so then, right in the start of COVID, right? That was January 16th. It was right. maybe we'd heard about it. I don't, I mean, there wasn't much news about it then. Yeah. yeah. Really nothing. Nothing was affected at that point. That's for sure. Right. So it wasn't long after that. Let's see. After that, we were in White Sands for a while. And then we went to like the VLA on our way over to, um, what the heck were we going? I guess we were ultimately going to Las Vegas. Um. And I don't think, unless you're a nerd night photographer like you and me, people might not know what VLA is. Oh, yeah. The very large array. It's this telescope, radio telescope. It's seen, It's the one that you see in, um, what's that show? Our movie? Con- uh, Contact? Yeah, Contact. Yeah. Um, so it's like this huge array of, of, of satellite dishes in the desert of New Mexico. And that's what that they're using I- for searching for radio waves for in- intelligent life, right? That might be some of what they do there. I think they, they, I think they also like study, you know, they can, whatever frequencies it runs at, they can analyze that for, you know, whatever galaxies or whatever they want to look at in space. But maybe they also do some of the uh, extraterrestrial research there. I'm not really sure. I guess so. Um, but it's a cool, like, so if you're a science nerd, like I am, it's a cool spot. <laughs> right. <laughs> if, you're yeah, my, absolutely. if you're my girlfriend, you stay in the RV and you would like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> She's like, I'll, I'll just hang out here. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so it was cool and actually you know it'd be cool to go back there and do night photography you have to get like a permit and all that set up for it um it's government or not government i guess but it's you know very protected because it's the, the dishes are very sensitive to radio waves and stuff and sure um so i think we were on our way to las vegas or something like that because we had some work to get done with the rv but i can't remember if that was in i think oh you know what we went over to um i remember we did we went over to bisti Bistai? Yeah, yeah, it's like an hour and a half south from me. Oh, shit. Yeah, she's like right next to it. Yeah. Yeah. So we went over there. I'd seen photos of it and I was like, oh, it looks like a cool spot. So we went there for a couple nights and that was pretty cool. Um, went out to the eggs and the yep. hoodoos. Yep. And it was cool because I was out completely alone. I figured, I, I thought it would be like really busy just because like all these spots, they blow up in social media and then there's like a thousand people. But I was alone at night, but it was also you know, end of January, I guess. Right. Um, cold. Yeah, it was, it was cold at night for sure. Um, but it was cool. And it's also the moon was up. So it was, uh, I wasn't doing like Milky Way stuff, but it was pretty fun. Sure. Um, 
anyway, I did that for a couple nights, and then like there was like a snowstorm moving in, so we were, like we booked it out of there because um, the RV is not the best in snow, so we booked it out of there down to uh, um, we ended up in Tucson, and we got the cat spayed there, and then we went we spent some time there. There's like a nice campground south of Tucson that's like in the grasslands uh, in the between some mountain ranges. It's really cool. Sounds awesome. Yeah, it's not like super photogenic, really, but it's probably with a telephoto. And but it was just a nice place to camp. It's like quiet, middle of nowhere. Totally. Um, anyway, we after that, I think we ended up going to Vegas at some point because we had to get some work done in the RV. And then it was um, Death Valley, and then Death Valley over to the Alabama Hills, and then uh, thanks to my buddy Josh Cripps's uh, recommendation because I'd forgotten that I didn't even know they were like right there. Um, and they went up to Bishop and saw him for a night and then came down to Toronto Pinnacles. You know where they are in California? Uh, ish. I've never yeah. shot there, but yeah. It's like a little way south of Alabama Hills, a few hours, something like that. Um, Eastern Sierra. Yeah. But like the mud, mudlands desert, like weird desert lands. Right. Like mud in the spring, I guess. Um, so that's when we started to really hear about COVID was in Toronto, that area. I can't remember the name of the town. There's like a town there with a Walmart and all that crap. And I went into, we went down from Alabama Hills. We went to that town before going to Toronto Pinnacles to get supplies. And I go into the Walmart and I go over to the paper towels and there's like no paper towels. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck's going on? Why aren't there any paper towels? I had no, like we were in the RV like away from everything all the time. So I have just have no idea what the hell's happening. And so I just figured the store had like a shortage on paper towel. Like they just ran out of paper towels because they stocked it wrong or something. I, I had no idea what was going on. Or they're reorganizing. I didn't know. Right. So luckily I could get RV toilet paper in the RV section. And while I'm doing that, there's this guy videotaping at the RV toilet paper. And I'm like, what the hell is going on over here? So I get my grab my toilet paper and then he finishes it. And I, apparently I was in the video, like just grabbing toilet paper. And he's like, oh, is it okay if you're in that? I'm like, yeah, I guess. And then I talked to him for a second and it turns out he's some guy who used to work for, or does work for Breitbart news. And he's like some oh, right God. wing wing nut. Like, yeah. So I'm like, oh, good. And you're like, <laughs> what are you doing here? Yeah. He's like, he's telling people he's making a video for YouTube to tell people to come to Walmart and get their toilet paper in the RV section so that I don't have any toilet paper for my RV. So, you know, that was the very beginning that we heard about it. And um, I was like, so I found out that it was like, obviously people were panicking because of. So this uh, must have been, this must have been like mid-March. Oh, February. Okay. That might have been early March. Yeah. Because I remember going on a trip down to the Grand Canyon around that time last year. And we might have been there around the same time. It was just like. You'd go into the grocery store and it was yeah. gutted. There's nothing. Yeah. So we, it must have been. Were you in there in March in the Grand Canyon? Yeah. I have to look at. I'd have to look at my photos, but yeah, March something. Yeah, we must have been there, and we might have been there at the same time. Because after that, we went to the, we did Toronto Pinnacles for a few nights, and then we went to the Grand Canyon, and um, that's where we. It, I don't think social distancing was a thing yet, really. Mm-hmm. We'd heard about much at that point, but like the stores were certainly low in supply. So we'd go into a store and like grab some stuff and like just stock up. Um, we spent like a night there. 
Um, it was Linda's first time seeing the Grand Canyon, and her very first view of the Grand Canyon was when a rainstorm was clearing and it was a rainbow over the canyon. So Sweet. it was like, it was like just divine, you know, luck of the Irish, she calls it. Yeah, I was there March 15th, running there. So okay. mid-March, yeah. We might have been there probably not too long before that because I th- we might have been over in a page by the 15th okay. that area that's so cool. after i went i went to page after that so that's funny oh, that's funny man uh, yeah after that we went over to page to get like some supplies and we we're gonna go to a campground sure. lee's ferry i think campground to like hang out for a while and before our next move and that's where we started hearing about social distancing and stuff um we went to um what's it called uh that annoyingly busy viewpoint there uh horseshoe oh. Yeah, Horseshoe Bend. Yeah, we went there in like a rainy, crappy evening, and it was still just mobbed with people, and it was miserable. Um, I still have but, never been there. Yeah, you're not missing much. Well, so what was it like finding out about COVID while you were away from civilization? I mean, like, you're on the road in your RV, so you're not glued to your TV or your phone. You don't have internet all the time, so I'm sure you're kind of like drip, 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 getting information, so... I mean, that must have been really different. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, we didn't go out a lot. We didn't eat out a lot even before then, just saving money and stuff. And sure. spent a lot of time in the RV or out hiking or just driving around. But we did have internet actually quite a bit because when we were parked, like I was working for my software job, so I'd have to like have internet while we were parked sure. somewhere. Of course. But um, yeah, we, you know, I don't know, we'd hear about it. And we'd be in the middle of nowhere and be like, well, I guess we're glad we're here. We're like <laughs> yeah. literally like surrounded by nothing right now camping. It's like no virus here. I think Linda posted a photo once with like the RV in the Toronto Pinnacles surrounded by nothingness and then no virus here. It's like her caption for it. Um, so it was weird. Um, but, you know, and then we get to Page after we went to the Horseshoe Bend and then we immediately drove up to Page for the night and we went to the grocery store that was open there and you know like there's like sold out of many things right um no beans no pasta yeah no beans <laughs> no bread no paper towels there's some napkins left we got some napkins um it's better than using a it rock was, yeah <laughs> so it was i mean i don't know it was weird for sure but you know riding it out here is weird too because like it's a we're in a small town out of the way you know and there's no it's not like I'm going walking through downtown somewhere where it's really busy, where there's lots of people. Like there's just no one here in the winter. Sure. Um, so I don't know. I don't even know what it's like during the pandemic in a busy area, really. You know, because I haven't really been to them since the since it started. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's funny because uh, after I went to the Grand Canyon, my buddy Kane and Shane and I we were out and we went um, we camped overnight a couple of nights at this spot in the middle of nowhere near. Well, in Arizona, in the middle of nowhere. And we barely had cell service. And uh, I remember my buddy Kane woke up and he was getting a bunch of texts from his wife saying like how bad it was getting in Denver. Oh, and yeah. like they were, they have a daughter at CSU and they were, they, they had to like send her home and like, wow. And like there was like these rumors that Trump was going to give everyone like a month's free of, like their wages, like all these rumors were flying around. <laughs> yeah, and, everything was going crazy. Yeah, and he was freaking out. He was like, I got to go home. I got to get out of here. So he yeah. left. And uh, 
Shane and I stuck around for another night and but yeah, it was just really bizarre time to be away from civilization. Oh yeah. When it when it hit like that, like it was slow building and we were at yes. a campground near Page and we'd I remember the day that like it really got kind of nutty and you'd heard about campgrounds closing and then national right. parks started closing and then Moab closed. Right. Uh and then, and like all the Native American parks closed, like Monument Valley. All the Native Valley, American parks were closed. Yep. Canyon de Chez, like everything was just yep. closed. And you're like, yeah, the whole, oh, yeah, yeah, all I that stuff I'll... that's around uh, Horseshoe Bend was closed. All those famous tours there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Antelope Canyon, all that stuff. Yeah, that stuff. So we were, yeah, it was like settling in by the time we got to Page, and then as days went on, it just got crazier and crazier. And then we were going to leave Paige to go up to Utah and just skirt around. You know, instead of going to Moab, we're going to go to like the Goosenecks or something like that. Sure. Um, but that was the day that like we looked at the, we were watching it or looking at the news or whatever. And it was just like, even like just so much worse. Like it was just getting so bad so fast. And we decided right there, like in a parking lot, at a gas station, after, like in the RV after doing the dump in the water that like, maybe we should just go home because we don't know what's going to happen. Um, if it's as bad as it saying it could get, you know, we'd rather be closer to our families and stuff like that. And we don't want to go into stores, um, like campgrounds are closing. You can't even stay at a campground. You have to stay at a Walmart or something like that. Right. Um, the Canadian border had closed, so we couldn't go to Alaska anyway. Um, Oh, what a bummer. At least not by that route. You'd have to take a ferry, I guess. Um, and then to get seasick. So that was out of the question. <laughs> so... So that when it got really bad, we were just like, okay, we're just driving home. Like we just canceled the rest of the trip. Not that there was anything to really cancel. <laughs> I had one workshop in Alaska planned, so I had to cancel that and refund the th two people that had signed up. Um, <laughs> that workshop didn't sell very well. <laughs> so um, we drove, we decided to, yeah, just head home from Page, And just our fucking luck, like as soon as we got out of the parking lot, we were like, all right, well, we're near Lake, uh, I think it's Lake Mead or whatever that's there, the big, huge lake that's no, near Lake Powell. Uh, Page. Lake Powell, yeah. yeah. So we were like, well, we're near Lake Powell. Let's go drive over to the beach and check it out before we leave. So we drive down the road, and then we're barely down the road, and the RV starts um, hesitating, and the end check engine light comes on, and it goes into crawl mode where you won't go above like, like 2,500 RPMs or 25 miles per hour or something like that, like some ridiculous thing. It's, it's called limp mode. Nicknamed that on the sprinters, Mercedes sprinters. So famous for them. Uh, they're famous for it. So we get up, like, I don't know, a mile down the road and I pull over and I'm like freaking out. I'm like, what the fuck do we do? Um, like, I know what the problem is, though. There's something to do with the EGR valve, which is this thing to do with um, the exhaust gas and recircling it in the engine that I know was having issues. And I just took it out and clean it every once in a while. But the computer had gotten fed up with it and, and it was was pissed that it had been overreacting or not acting right for too long. So it decided to shut down. Um, the ultimate solution was just to turn the engine off, disconnect, wait 10 minutes, disconnect the battery, wait 10 minutes or something like that, and plug it back in for it to clear. And it would have been fine, right. which I tried doing, but then I didn't really test it properly. Like instead of driving really fast, you know, trying to really drive with it, I just kind of revved the engine in place and it didn't sound right. So I decided to replace the valve, which I had a spare with me that I bought off Amazon, which it turns out was a piece of crap, like was dead on, like didn't work when I put it back in. So to take the old one back, I take that out, put the new one back in, clean it, put it back in. And in the process, I poured coolant down the uh, exhaust 
um, the <laughs> the hole where the EGR valve bolts onto the engine. So I had to call my cousin, who's a mechanic. I'm like, hey, I just poured a little bit of coolant into the engine. Is that bad? He's like, yeah, well, they're diesel engines. The compression ratio is really high. Um, you got to make sure before you start it that you can crank it over by hand. So I had to go across. Luckily, we were literally across the street from an O'Reilly Auto Parts. So he told me what to get to go attach to the um, engine and like just turn the flywheel by hand with a big um, like a breaker bar, basically, um, with the right socket. So I'm like under the RV, like, okay, I got it on the nut on the engine and I'm like turning it by hand, do one complete revolution and you're safe. So I did two just to make sure. And that meant the RV wouldn't blow up and I turned it back on and put everything back together and it was fine. Um, So you, you literally just described my worst nightmare. It was pretty bad, <laughs> but I've had worse. But the stupid thing is that, you know, all I had to do was just unplug the battery and plug it back in. But I thought, I was like, well, for, I just, I'm going to have to replace it now. And so I went through all that crap and made it worse because I'm an idiot. Um, but, you know, at least we got going. When I was in Alaska, it broke down and had a similarly stupid problem that would have been a simple fix that I ended up having to pay a billion dollars to get towed to Anchorage from the middle of nowhere but I could have fixed it in the side of the road in like 10 minutes <laughs> had I just oh tried replacing the one part that I had a spare for it. I was like, nah, it's a brand new. That couldn't have gone bad, but it had gone bad and I had to, but I should have just put the spare back in. So anyway, I have a habit of, uh, or like a history of shitty mechanical experiences. You've just <laughs> convinced me to never go on the road in an RV. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sold. Well, yeah. Well, that was a really old one, the one in Alaska. And then the Mercedes, they're just known for that stupid problem. Um, so, you know, any any automobile you get is going to have some problem eventually, possibly, you know. For yeah. sure, for sure. And if it's well, not dude. with the engine, it's with the fucking toilet or the plumbing or something goes bad. Well, I wanted to pause for a moment to tell listeners about a unique and exclusive offer available only to you. I am offering one-on-one experiences in the desert or mountains where I help you learn to create personally expressive artwork. This is your opportunity to ask me anything. I will be your personal guide for unlocking your curiosity and helping you discover a path forward in your creativity. Check out the show notes for more information. Okay, let's get back to our great chat with Adam. So... So we're 35 minutes in and we haven't covered anything on the list yet. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> Which cool. Which is fine, but it's cool. It's kind of funny. <laughs> well, you can edit out the first 35 minutes and we can talk about the rest of this. What's on the book there. No, man. So I, I want to just dive right into that because, I mean, I'm excited to talk about this. First of all, thank you for sending me a copy of your new oh, book. You're very welcome, man. Yeah. It is awesome. And, uh, just, a you know, I got it literally yesterday, so I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I did spend some time today looking through it and checking it out and read some of the chapters. I was like, Oh, I don't know anything about this. So I'm going to read that. And I will say the way that you wrote this book is exactly how I would probably teach like a master class on night photography. A lot of the things that you talked about in here are things that that I would cover and have tried to cover through various like you know PowerPoint presentations or things like that over the cool. years but yeah it's awesome so title of the book is night sky photography uh f- from first principles to professional results which I think is accurate 
Yeah, they can't, of, I didn't even come up with a title. I, I, I guess it's good. Yeah. So, so how did this even come about? How did you, how did this project even come onto your radar? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. The whole thing, like looking back on it now. The so uh, they came to like it wasn't my idea for the book. They the publisher came to me, which I've come to learn is like really common. Publishers need people to write books and they need to sell books. So they approach people all the time who've never written a book before. Um, They just they need books. Right. So sure. um, The guy who so the the publisher is a UK company. It's called uh, Ilex. Okay. But they're. It's, I don't understand the, how the whole grouping works, but there's Ilex and there's Octopus, which seems to be like above them or something. I don't know. And then they're all like... Corporate hierarchy. The, yeah, I don't know. And then they're all under Hachette, which is like this big thing that owns a ton of things, including like big name um, book brands. Okay. Um, like, I can't remember the other... I'm going to forget them right now, obviously, but... Um, lots of like big name, uh, book publishers you've heard of are distributed through this Hachette place, Okay, which is, um, so anyway, the, the guy who worked for Ilex, who go, who like literally goes out and like goes to expos and approaches people to be authors and stuff like that, um, uh, was at photo plus in, um, geez, I think like 20, was it 2017 or 2018? Um, 2018, and he saw me on the um, the list of speakers for Nikon. I think I was on oh, like just. Yeah. A, I don't even think I was speaking that year. I think I was just on a panel. Was a uh, Josh Cripps was in there too, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And Mike Mezul. Mezul. Yeah, Mike Mezul. Yeah. Mezul. Yeah. Um, both former so, guests of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, Josh is. I, Josh had that quite that story about being stranded on that mountaintop. <laughs> that's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. That's that's much worse than your EGR valve not working. <laughs> I don't know. I'd rather do them stranded on a mountain thing. <laughs> so that's probably true. That's probably more fun. It's um, and I know what to do. I'm like, oh, I can do yeah, this. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, exactly. anyway, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so the guy, his name was Adam Juniper. I don't know if he's still related with Ilex anymore or not, but he came down to the. The expo, he saw me on the list. I maybe he'd seen me speaking before, spoke before there. I don't know, but he got in touch with me via email before the expo even started. He wanted to meet while we were in New York together there at the expo. So I met with him. He just told me about what they do and like they they publish photography books and they're kind of like, well, they're like the one you have. Like they're just nicely laid laid out. They're they're um, kind of like a really thick like magazine style in a way where they're, they're not a hard cover, but they're not a super soft shitty cover and they're not paper thin pages. They're like really nice, high quality um, pages, but it's all photography books. And at least that's what Ilex does, I guess. So he said he wants to do a book on night photography and he had done one with uh, Dixie Dixon, who was a, a Nikon ambassador and she does fashion photography. Okay. Um, which by the way, if anyone has the book, they incorrectly list me as an icon ambassador in the bio in the back cover. Um, they You'll take it. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I guess they just assumed since I was on the stage there, that I must've been an ambassador, but, um, they never ran it by me. Uh, that's the whole other part of the story. But so they, he approached yeah, me and talked me about really, it. I'm really curious about that part, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> 
Because so I, I also, I mean, not to, not to, not to interrupt you, but your book came with something I've never seen a book come with before. Oh yeah, I put that in there. The uh, like the rata, the rata, which was, yeah, I wrote that part, which is interesting that you had to do that. But I mean, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So that. Let me work my way there. <laughs> <laughs> It'll okay, make sense. Okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I didn't, um, I didn't mean to. to no, 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 no. I just like when I explain the rest of it, that whole that part will make even more sense. I think. Okay. So cool. they the process is with them that like you have to put together this thing called a blad, which is a book layout and design or something like that. I don't remember what it stands for. It's basically like a proof of concept book, like a little mini book that's got like a table of contents and like a sample chapter or something like that, a bunch of pictures. And they, the whole point of it is they put this little thing together and then they bring it to the London Book Fair and then public or vendors come around and do whatever they do at the London Book Fair and they figure out what books they might be interested in buying from publishers. Hmm. So, excuse me. So they had to get that together for the London Book Fair, which was in like, I don't know, April of the next year. So like 2019. Okay. Um, yeah, books something take like, a long time. Yeah, sometime in the spring. So they they had to, they had to get all this information. So I, luckily, I had an ebook that was free available at that point. So the guy took the ebook and some photos from my website and stuff, and basically turned it into the what he needed. And then he, but he had some questions for me. He needed something else, and I just emailed him back. I was like, okay, let me know what you need. And I didn't hear from him, so I emailed him back like again and again and again, and I never heard anything else from then. He had given me the email of this other guy who was supposed to be in touch with me about the process and I never heard anything from him either. And then like literally months went by and I just assumed that the book had died, that they changed their minds or something like that. And you're like, is, am I getting scammed here? <laughs> I, was, I was like, what's going on? <laughs> Luckily at that point, I hadn't really done anything. All I had done was said, okay, I'm interested. Right. I hadn't signed anything and they did all the work in getting the, the, the concept book together, whatever you want to call it, the blad. So I didn't, I didn't hear anything. <laughs> I just figured they changed their minds or whatever. So then in, I think, I don't know, like August or September or something of 2019, they get in touch with me. And um, it's the the woman who does the accounting or something like that, or, or well, she reaches out to the, P, I can't remember what her, what her title is, but anyway, she reaches out to me and she says, hey, I'm just checking in to see if you'll have the materials, uh, materials ready for the book by the end of the month. <laughs> and you're like, what? And I'm like, what? <laughs> I figured she must have been talking about. I I didn't even think they meant the book. I thought they meant that the um the blad like the the sort of you know concept part. Right. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't like. I hadn't heard from anyone. I didn't think there was anything going on. So I don't really have time right now to get the materials ready for the blad. Like we're about ready to go on this huge trip. So she says, oh no, it's not. It's not that. No, it's not that. It's the book. Like we actually want the material for the book. Uh, like all the text and the images. And I'm like, what? the hell are you talking about <laughs> so she so it turns out that the guy who had supposed was this guy who i never heard from at all not even a peep out of ever was supposed to have sent me uh what they call a deal memo which is like the book deal like explains all everything that goes into it and um <laughs> he was supposed to have sent me that in june with like a due date in september or whatever i never got it and, and like, so theoretically wouldn't you think that would 
also have have you like sign that you're agreeing to do the book. Oh yeah, and, you're supposed to like sign it. And like how much it, how much money oh, yeah. am I expecting out of this? And oh, what yeah. are the royalties? And like, there's a lot oh, that yeah. goes into this. I mean, oh, I yeah, have a the... I have a book that I'm working on, and like, yeah, oh, cool, it's a whole man. contract. Oh yeah, the thing's like nine miles long. Yeah, like, and yeah. you never got that, so you're like, oh, I guess it's not happening. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? So they, I, we work it out with with her to be like, um, that you know, I mean, she apologizes, obviously, but you know, obviously, my um, faith in the company has been a little bit damaged at that point. So they, they, she says, like, they hired, they've got this new guy starting, who's the new photography editor or um, director or whatever it is. Um, and he's great. And he's been in the photography magazine industry for a long time. Uh, he'll be the guy you're working with. Um, and blah, 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 blah. And here's all the details. So then I like grill her on the details for like, you know, a week or two um, before finally saying yes. And the guy I end up working with is great. He's awesome. Um, very, you know, pretty good, uh, responsive in emails and all that stuff. Never met him or seen him or anything like that, or even talked on the phone, but you know, that worked out sure. pretty good. But the the process, you know, I told him like, you know, I can have it by, I think maybe April or something like that, that I could start writing it in December or something and have it then. And so I was writing it on the road and then of course COVID hit and I had to cancel the workshop and we had to come home, uh, back to Maine. We didn't have a place to live. So we were like in this temporary like shack for a while. And then we had to find this other place that we're in now. That's a little house down the road from the other place. And like, I had to continue working my, my software job. I couldn't do any workshops. So I didn't have, like, I was just freaking out and there was like just no time to like write the book for a while. And then like, it just became clear that I had to get the thing done. So, um, early in 20, you know, March, uh, April, I guess April and May, on uh, June, I like was started really cranking on it and it took a ton of work and a ton of time and like some help from other people. Like I got, I'm very thankful to Yuri Bolesky for getting on the phone with me for a couple hours. Yeah, I and, saw you have a couple of his photos in the book too. Yeah, yeah. He lent me some photos. I'm very thankful for that because I didn't have anything from the Southern Hemisphere. And I, I did a little research through with him on on the phone for a while. Uh, like a, a little FaceTime or Zoom call or whatever. That was really cool. So, you know, it took a lot of work to get everything ready into the book. And then um, because it was late being delivered... Like they were, and because everything on their end was all screwed up because of COVID, like right. everything else was late and everything else was going bonkers and they were all working remote and they had trouble communicating, I guess. Um, it took like, I delivered them everything and then it took them a long time to get the, um, like the laid out book back for review um, to me. And when they did, they said, okay, you have, as like they sent me back, they sent me the book, like the layout that they're going to, like, this is what they're sending to the printers. And they said, um, just look it over. Hopefully everything's okay and you ha we won't have any problems. And I'm like, uh, okay, how much time do I have to do this? And he said, 24 hours. And I'm like, what? And the book's 200 something pages. So I <laughs> stopped doing everything I'm doing and I read my book um, and compare it to what I sent them for text. And there's like two pages or more of errors in the book um, that I had to correct. Um, and like noted in the, t like here, you got to fix this. You got to fix this. You got to fix this. You're missing a photo here. That photo's wrong. Like just tons of errors. Oh so gosh, I send them all that. And then I never see another draft of the book before they send it to the publisher. So by the time I see the actual final 
PDF that they, or whatever it is, but it's a PDF that they sent me, that they send to the publisher, they only send me the PDF of the contents and not the cover. Um, actually, before, when I had the chance to review everything, it was just the contents and not the cover. So I never saw the cover image. I never saw the title until I saw the PDF, like the day it was going to be sent to the printer. And I never, so I had no say, I had like very little say in the title. I had very little say in the cover, although I did suggest things. And that was one of the photos I suggested. I guess that's um, the difference of uh, self-publishing versus having a publisher do it. Yeah, well, they think they know what's going to sell, so they they choose the title for you, basically. And they did, but they, it's weird because they didn't even like talk to me about the title. They didn't ask my opinion on it. They just picked a title, you know, Night Sky Photography from First Principles to Professional Results. And I saw that, and I was like, I have okay, I guess that's a good title, but I had nothing to do with that title. <laughs> I mean, it works. Yeah, at least it's. I mean, I mean, it sounds like it's it, going to teach you. I guess it could be way worse. Yeah. It's just weird that it came out like that. And then, so I, I was going to say, though, based on what you just described, that process, yeah, I feel like you're pretty lucky that you only had, what, five errors in the book? Yeah, because <laughs> I submitted like two pages of errors. And then when I finally saw the PDF that, had, that they had actually sent to the printer, they was only had those like two or three errors left in it. Um, unfortunately, one of them's a photo they left out, like an image from Photopills that they left out. Right. Um, and then there's like a couple of clarifications. I just didn't like the wording. But and then, of course, the big problem that I didn't see until after they had sent it to printer because they never sent me a, an image of the cover um, until they printed it was the the bio mistake listing me as a Nikon ambassador. Right. Which they never even asked me to proof my own bio, for God's sakes. So um, so now I have this piece like if you buy it on Amazon, obviously, you're not getting the errata and you have no idea it exists. And if you go to my website and look for it. But if I send a book out to someone as a friend or a gift or someone bought it for me directly, I include that with it, um, which feels yeah. weird to have to do. But that's just the way it came out. Um, totally. So so what else what else went into the actual process of, of writing the book? Because there's a ton of incredible information in here. I mean, I feel like if I had this book in 2010, 2011, I would have skipped about six years of mistakes. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's what most of what in most of what's in it is just experience doing it. Right. Totally. But during the writing process, there were things I wanted, excuse me, there were things I wanted to research more, including um, using a star tracker. Um, so you had used one before that? No, I had, but I didn't have a good one. Uh -huh. And um, I never, I, I'd always get like sold them or something like that. I never sure. really used them much. Um, so I got, I got a good one. And my goal was actually to prove that, like, you know, for lighting a landscape astrophotography, like a star tracker is kind of like a waste of time because you can just use star stacking. And if you're using a star tracker, you're going to do star stacking anyway, unless you just want to deal with planes and hot pixels. So, right. um, but for like telephoto lenses and telescopes, it makes total sense, obviously, to use a star tracker for anything like that. So I just, so I wanted to get into that, but it was like, I probably could have left that all completely out of the book and just not even mention star trackers. But I figured at the time the book was coming out, um, or at the time I was writing it, they were becoming more and more popular and people were asking me about them more. So I figured I should include something about them in the book. Well, yeah, and you're you're not cool unless you can say it's tracked and stacked. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. I'm just I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I know that's that's the Facebook. You're in that you manage that Facebook group, right? Oh, I'm a moderator for Nightscaper. Moderator. Yeah. 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 So uh, anyway, I did like I 
got a tracker and played around with it and got some, you know, our photos of Orion that Ryan Nebula to put in the book. And then uh, it looks good. I talk, yeah, I talked with, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I talked with uh, Yuri about the, like, actually, the, like, the color of the night sky and, like, the um, physics of camera sensors and literally, like, the whole, like, the whole section in there on noise and photons and shot noise and all that. I wanted to run that by Yuri. And uh, Ralph Hill, who actually helped me too, he's the guy who writes, um, the software engineer who writes uh, Star Landscape Stacker. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I met him in person. I've known him for a long time um, via email, and then I met him in person in the Alabama Hills when we were out there. That's cool. Um, yeah, that was fun. Uh, so, you're a, already, so you're a Mac uh, user? Yes. Yeah, I've been, yeah, are you a Windows user? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to use Sequator. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I f- was using the other day with a demo on a client and like ran into an issue with it, with uh, the way it does its stacking and generates noise. Anyway, it's a whole other topic going to. They both have their pros although, and cons. Although I will say that was the chapter that I was most interested in reading. Because I, what, for that very reason that you talked to, that you're describing, of, I haven't really had very good results using using it. I, would, I have much better results just using a single single exposure oh, yeah. and just being good to go like and what that's one of the things i really liked about your book is you kind of dispel some of the myths that i feel like are out there in terms of how to make compelling interesting night photography is like you don't need to go crazy about techniques and processing you know you you can achieve a lot using one or two exposures and and like even if you have a little bit of star trailing you know, like if you shot it for 20, 25, 30 seconds, yeah. most people probably aren't going to notice that, especially on Instagram. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. If that's I mean, yeah, right. So, yeah. I mean, I have a, one of my favorite nightscape photos is, is a single exposure and it was 30 seconds and I love it. And it's, you know, yeah. If yeah. you look really close, you can see it. Oh and, yeah. yeah. But it, people don't know. Most people don't notice that stuff, honestly. Most. Yeah. That's the same with I, sharpening stuff. I feel like people, only photographers notice that kind of stuff. I I think. Yeah, yeah. It's I think it's true. There's, it's really easy to get into any hobby. Oh yeah, and just go way deep into, into the hole. Just go way deep at it. Like there's, you know, how many people collect that get into like doing videography or or YouTube streaming or something like that and buy all the expensive shit or get into guitar and they buy like all these like crazy expensive effects pedals and stuff or they get into photography and buy the best equipment and only want to do the best that they can possibly do but then their photos suck because they don't have any talent you know so or or their music sucks or their whatever sucks so it's like i i lay out all the technique in the book but i like i think like you said there's parts where i say i think there's a very there's a very specific part i'm thinking of right like I clearly say like, look, you can just do single exposures if you want to. Totally. And like, you can see how well it looks when you do it, when you do it right, you know? Um, but there's all the technique in there for learning star stacking and exposure blending and all that stuff as well. Well, and I don't, I don't know about you, but uh, when I look at night photography, that's like stacked and tracked and composited and like everything's perfect it just doesn't look right to me. It just looks super hyper realistic and yeah, nothing you could ever, ever, ever experience ever. And like, I think if, if you've just got into night photography, that kind of stuff would probably really overwhelm you. Like, Oh, I, 
that's insane. You know, like, how do I even do that? Right. I, yeah. And if I you think, get into it, you're like, wait, I have to buy a tracker and I have to do all that stuff. It's like just to do night photography. Yeah. And that's what I liked about what you say about gear too. It's like, just go shoot, you know, like you don't need the best gear. You don't, you don't have to have perfect settings. You don't have to stack and track and do all this stuff to get results that you're going to like. And then eventually if you want to like evolve into stuff that might look a little better that, you know, get into that stuff. But, you know, uh, often, I mean, this goes with any genre of photography, but I feel like composition and light. Yeah. That trumps everything else. Like you could have perfect. Absolutely. You can have perfect technical skills in night photography, like tracked sky and, you know, all this stuff. But if your composition sucks or if your editing sucks, like mine does, I mean, it's <laughs> it's not going to look good. And so I think, yeah. I think it's important to keep that kind of stuff in mind. People get – yeah, night photography is one of those things. People get really crazy about gear and technique. And I think, I think you should focus on composition and light first. Yeah, I know. I agree for sure. It's more – Get, I said this before. I don't know if I've said it. I've probably said it in the book somewhere, but I've said it in other other things I've written or interviewed on. It's like focus on, you know, above all else, it's composition. And so important. That's, that's important. Like you could have a really um, clean image that you stacked or tracked or whatever you want to do and then separate foregrounds and everything and you blended it perfectly. But if the composition sucks and it's boring or, um, yeah, you know, like, or you just didn't think of the light the right way or something like that. Um, Which is, I feel like that's why good night photography that's well composed, that doesn't take advantage of compositing from other locations is really hard to do because it's, I mean, there's so many variables that go into perfecting that, right? I mean, first of all, having the vision to compose something at night uh, and knowing where the stars and the Milky Way and everything else is going to line up in rel- in relation to your foreground elements, it's so much easier to just compose that stuff in later, which is why I think so many people do that because it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that, but that's a good point that maybe some people do it because it's just easier to do it instead of trying to figure out how to make it happen in real life. No, I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> It's night and day. Uh, I think that's part of the of, fun, though, is like trying to visualize it and scouting locations and researching things and yeah, yeah, you know, going so there and trying it. I think that's like more fun than than just blending two images together to make it look like what you want it to look like. But you know, I don't want to get into a whole rabbit hole. But uh, oh, it is a rabbit hole. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> It's more but, like the pits of hell, but we won't go there. Yeah, yeah, that's why I stay off all that social media stuff. I don't want to get involved <laughs> in that. But um, I yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. That maybe some people do it just because it's like easier than trying to figure out how to do it in real life. But um, yeah, I don't know. I like I mean, going out and like looking at maps. I love looking at maps for one thing. Like even since I was a kid, yes. I just love looking at maps. Yeah, me too. Um, so I don't even if I'm not like doing photography, I just like to look at maps. So like. Now photography gives me an excuse to look at them even more. And like uh, with all the research you can do now online, 
with, you know, Google satellite and other people's photos that have been taken in that area, even if it's just like a cell phone photo, you can get ideas of what things look like before even there. Um, and then of course the most fun part obviously is just going somewhere and seeing what it's like for yourself or hiking to some viewpoint that you've never seen. Um, but you know, we also have so many tools now that make it easy to figure out what the Milky Way is going to do, right? When you're standing there. Yeah, photo pills, augmented reality, yeah. like so good. But God. yeah, I don't know. So I I like doing it all, you know, in one spot at one time. Um, I don't do, but I do. I mean, I do stacking, so I get a lot. I get the details through that, but I don't the blending. Like I do all, I generally do my, my foreground photos are taken around the same time. Like I don't normally do like twilight right, or daytime. Blend. Yeah. Blue hour blend. But I've done it. I think I've tried it once or twice. And often the the problem I find is that the, uh, the like there's shadows there that you don't yeah, you notice. Talk about it. You talk about I think it in I, your book. I mean, it's. Oh, I probably yeah. do. Yeah. If you do a blue hour blend, often there are shadows that are introduced into your foreground elements that would not be there at night, which I think yeah. is a pretty clear giveaway for anyone who's even yeah. remotely photography literate to look at a photo. I mean, the classic the classic one that I constantly see people do is like really awesome field of wildflowers that are completely still, by the way, which is almost impossible at night, right? Yeah. And the flowers are totally still, but then you see all these shadows underneath the flowers. Right. And then you're like, what's creating the shadow? Yeah, exactly. It's not the Milky Way. <laughs> it's not the... It's, <laughs> yeah, you know? it's... Uh, yeah, it's certainly... I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Like, that's what I love. My friend David Thompson, uh, he always says, like, if it doesn't make sense, like, it doesn't look good. Yeah, you know? I agree with that. I know that it's like very popular to do composite and stuff though, but it's, so it's an art, right? You can do whatever the heck you want. You could take photos of trash cans and put the Milky Way inside them or whatever and unicorns and add Bigfoot. I don't care. But, um, <laughs> you know. Hey, art the, is whatever you say it is. It's whatever you say it is, right? You can put trash on a canvas and that's art. That's so. Right. Doesn't um, mean it's good. Doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I agree, though. I like uh, stuff to look more like it's kind of weird. Like I say natural, but it's like, you know, when you're standing there, you can't really see shit. Right. It is a weird thing with night photography, you know. So I guess when I say natural, I mean, like, well, it's natural to what the camera saw. <laughs> well, it's, it was there. It was and it was actually there physically happening. The photons and... went through your lens into your sensor. <laughs> Right. Yes. Yeah. Those are real photons. Right. Those are not artificial photons. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but it also, you know, there's certain areas where, yeah, there'll be so much more detail in the image than you could ever see at night, but it's still, if you edit it the right way, I think it feels like it's a night photo still. Um, especially if you're not using like a, a blue hour blend that has shadows that like should not be there under right. a, a night sky, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't know. That whole thing seems like it could get in. I so anyway, the book is like, I teach it how I do it. Right. I don't even mention compositing. I don't think in the book at all. Like the, yeah, I don't think what, you what, do either. Termed compositing, which I hate that, that that word has become known as like faking it now. Um, I think the closest though, you get is a blue yeah. hour blend. Yeah. Which I don't even, Oh, probably talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. You just kind of describe the process, but, it, yeah. but you also say like, by the way, if you do a blue hour blend, right? Beware. 
it's not yeah. probably gonna look real <laughs> yeah and uh i what i i do i like doing blue hour milky way stuff where you actually are shooting the milky way in blue hour yeah it's awesome um, it's yeah, super it's faint that, like yeah it's like really faint but still a lot of detail and you get this nice blue sky and it's really blue like you're not pretending it you're not faking it blue you're not pushing the blue right you're not blue. really pushing blue. your white balance to three thousand <laughs> right yeah <laughs> not using tungsten right um so it, like it's actually blue you know um and then the landscape has a blue tone to it it's just so it's really pretty and it's also like it's easier in a way because there's more light so you don't have to you know your yeah, foreground exposures sure. are shorter Less noise, you can foreground exposures are shorter and you can use a higher f stop to get more in focus, you know. Yeah. Um, like that's how I did some sunflowers um last summer was at blue hour, so they could get them in focus like way easier and without risking the wind, you know. Right. Um with longer exposures. And this I mean, yeah, it came out great. And you have, a, have another yeah. You have a photo in the book that's uh like a canyon scene. And you yeah. talk about in the book how you tried to use artificial light, but it didn't look right. It looks kind of garish. And yeah. what I liked about that was like, you are not afraid to show that, you know, the wind was blowing a little and there's a little blur in the leaves of the trees. But like, oh, yeah. I think you did like a 10 minute exposure for your like foreground. 20. Something crazy like that with ISO 1600. Yeah. Yeah. And I the love that. Like, shot. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it looks yeah. super clean. Like that, that's, I love doing, that's most of my night photography in the last four years is that I do a, you know, I'll do a one exposure for the night sky and then I'll do like a, a long, really long exposure for the foreground and then just mm -hmm. blend them. But yep, like yep. back to back. Yeah. And I feel like Real that's deal. a really clean way to represent what you experienced. And yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much what I teach and what I do as well. Yeah, yeah. With it's, uh, but it's hard. It's hard. It's a little bit harder. I mean, there's yeah, the blending is. I mean, if you do star stacking, you've got to work through all that, and then there's the blending. Right. Um, which if depending on what you're blending, like if you're out where I am and there's trees everywhere, the fucking horizons can be a pain in the ass to blend. Totally. But that's when I learned about how to use what is it, Photoshop selecting mask panel and the fine edge brush and all that stuff. Um, right. Like learn to master that. that. Oh my God, that made that so much easier. Well, and now they have the, uh, so the replace sky thing, yeah. the whole controversial switching skies. There's actually a really useful tool in there, the select sky yeah. mask, which is kind of the same idea. Yeah. It's actually very useful for doing more honest work, like what you're describing. Yeah, yeah like if you're going to use it to blend, like, I haven't tried it, but I saw Sean Bagshaw's video on it. Yeah, it's great. His video is great. Yeah. I yeah. haven't tried it, though. I guess I forgot because I just I did some editing a while ago. And I could have used it, but I forgot about it. I guess I should try that. Yeah, it's um, super. It's way better than hand blending using like, yeah. you know, a quick select tool or something like that. Yeah. I'll have to check and see what it does if it's if it just generates a uh, selection or if it actually d tries to feather in around it the feathers. edges. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty nice. Okay. All right. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that, that shot was, I think I even show, I think there's even in the book, there's a photo of what the light painting looked like. Yes, um, there is. Right. It, it looks, looks terrible. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so 
I was like, this is what it looked like. It looks terrible. Um, so, and that was before I had done some long exposures for the foreground, but I'd never done one more than like five minutes. Right. Yes. And I was like, this is really dark. I'm looking into like a, a small Canyon, um, like a notch, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. Uh, and there's no moonlight, there's no ambient light. So this is going to be need to be a really long exposure. So I did 20 minutes at 1600, which was perfect. Um, and yeah, there's a little movement in the trees, but you know, it wasn't that bad. And it's not bad at all. You know, it's, and it looks great. Obviously it doesn't really look like what you would see standing there. Cause there's so much more detail in that Canyon that you just couldn't see with your eyes. But I like to think that it looks like it's at night because it's not super lit up. There's not lots of weird shadows. Right. Um, you know. Well, and it's literally what was there at that exact and same time. Right. Yeah. 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 It was literally what was there. Um, but that, and that's just the way I've been doing night photography since I really got into it, you know, is, is like, I treated it like there, when I was getting into it, there was no book on it. There was no article on it. Um, you had to just figure it out yourself and totally. all you had to do Lots was just know how to, yeah. But as long as you knew how to do night, I mean, regular daytime photography, it wasn't any different. You're just using longer shutter speeds. Right. Um, and you have to know how to use your camera at night. Yeah. Which yeah. makes you a better photographer during the day. Yeah. Cause you're like, I know yeah. exactly what every button does in the dark. Right. <laughs> By feeling where it's at. I'm yeah. like, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, I just knew from like daytime landscape photography, how to do focus stacking, exposure blending anyway, because you're doing that for some daytime stuff. So you just adapt it to night stuff. Totally. Um, so that's so since I was already doing that, that's just what I did at night. I never even thought of doing like blue hour blends when I was getting into it or anything like that, you know? Right. You know, what's interesting, though, is the, 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 the techniques that you describe in the book offer ways for personal expression and creativity, but it also represents what you actually was actually there. Yeah. So, so I feel like, you know, there's like, often you hear people say, well, I do all this because it's my way of personally expressing myself and it's art. Right. And I'm like, that's cool. But you like, you can do that through also purely representing what you, what is there as well. It's not, it's not, it's not an or, you know what I mean? You can do either one. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. It's just the way I shoot and the way I do it. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I don't know. I've heard that a lot. I guess I've said that too. It's like what I try to show what I, what you felt at the scene or some bullshit like that, whatever we say. That's like, I've heard so many times now. It just seems like it's just cliche to say it. Um, I guess it's kind of true though. Cause when you're standing there and you really feel something standing there, you know, you want to come out in the photo. Right. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I just, you know, like I just, I was out the other, literally yesterday at sunset uh, here at the, at the waterfront and it was a kind of a half cloudy, half clear sunset and there wasn't any dramatic color, but the water does this weird thing. Like when there's, when the sky's just right at, in twilight after sunset here, where, or I guess anywhere in the ocean where it turns like this really like deep blue and almost you get some like lavender colors and pink colors, depending on the way the clouds are working. And, mm-hmm. and it's just this beautiful scene with a boat, just a fishing boat, vertical composition, but it's all like this soft, like pink and like almost like lavender color. And, you know, it's not a night photo and it's just a boat, but I was just gorgeous. And I just like, I was had f- so much fun just standing there watching it and shooting it. 
And so it was really important to me to like make the photo edited to the point where it looked as much as possible like it did and felt like it was when I was standing there. And that's just a boat. (laughs) Um, So it is true that I, you know, you'll try to make the photo express kind of what you felt when you were standing there. But I often do it through just kind of natural editing as opposed to some people do it through, well, I felt this amazing experience. I like boosted the saturation to 100% or something like that because we felt, (laughs) you know, something super crazy going on. Because I dropped Um, acid right before I took the photo. Right, yeah. Um, I don't know. Everyone's got their own take on it and stuff like that, right? And um, I'm just... No, I mean, I used to do stupid, crazy stuff with my photos. Bad, like just hideous. Yeah, I mean, we Looking all did. Back. Yeah, yeah did, I mean, man. it's part of the process, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of the process. HDR, I mean, back in the day. Oh, dude, I have some nasty HDR stuff. Nasty. Oh, yeah. Photomatics or whatever it was called. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Just crazy, stupid stuff. stuff. Oh, yeah. It's stuff that I thought at the time was like killer. Yeah, so this is amazing. And then I someone would say, look like, that looks now. terrible. And you're like, how dare you? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm glad the HDR craze is over. That was that was pretty bad for a while. I feel like yeah, there are we these fads it. like that that kind of come and go. Yeah, for sure. And if, if you happen to be kind of emerging and learning as a photographer during that particular time period, that's what you're using. And that's what you're doing. And there's nothing like it's part of how you learn, I think. Yeah. You just got to go through it, man. Yeah. You know, you never know what you're going to like or what you're good at until you try it, you know? Yeah. And and getting getting really negative reactions from people is part of that. Right. And getting like, that's the sickest thing I ever saw in my life is also part of that. And you have yeah. to decide for yourself whether or not either one of those statements is true. Here's a hint. Yeah. They're both true. And it depends yeah. on who's looking at it. Right. And <laughs> if it's social media you're talking about, it's like a whole nother ball of fucking Well, yeah, let's talk about that. Because I know one of the things you sent me when we were pre- prepping for this was you have a hate-hate relationship with <laughs> social media. Yes. What does that mean? Uh, well, let's see. I hate it more than anything I can possibly imagine. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I, I yeah, I... I mean, arguably, social media is like the reason we're everything's so fucked up um, in so many ways um, for many reasons that you've yeah, probably talked about before. Um, yeah, Politics, it's not me saying that. It's like, yeah, mental every, yeah health, everything. Mental health. Yeah. Everything. But it's, it's also a great theory. way to connect with people. Like, I wouldn't have known right. about you without social media. Right. So there's good and bad. But arguably, I think the, the bad is like outweighing the, the good. Um, no, I agree. It's terrible. It's, it's really bad. So, but even without that, um, I just don't, you know, I, I grew up, uh, when I was a teenager, I was into computers, you know, early on. And back in the day when we didn't have the internet, you had, uh, modems and you would connect to like your local BBS Yes, and there might be like a chat room on there. And then when you had internet, you had IRC chat rooms. I was going to say, I was going to, um, let's do this. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I've spent enough time staring at chat rooms and and uh, forums and uh, blogs and everything from 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, to be done with all of that, you know, crap that was barely, you know, even back then, there'd be like flame wars and shit. 
and now it's just everyone in there uh, has a phone or a computer right and i just i just i have other th- like also i don't know when i'll take the fucking time to look at social media like i've got other things to do <laughs> i have plenty of things going on so i use social media uh i feel like i have to because the for the business a little ways but sure Honestly, most of the you know the business side comes from the mailing list. Um, although I can, I do sometimes build that through um, social media. But my actual social media pages don't really, you know, they're most of the they're just people who like looking at pictures. Um, they're not most of them aren't people who want to buy a workshop or something like that. This has been fun, dude. We're almost at two hours. That's crazy. And uh, I always end off the podcast by asking you who would, who you would recommend for the show. Yeah, and um, so I picked a couple guys who, when I was first getting into landscape photography, and after I had moved back to New Hampshire, this was in 2011, um, I found these guys, I guess, one of them through social media, I guess, or web search or something, um, Jim Salji, and he is a former uh, meteorologist, and he used to work at the um, uh, Mount Washington Observatory. And on top of Mount Washington in New Hampshire, which is, for those who don't know, it's the tallest mountain in, I don't know if it's in the East Coast, if it's the tallest mountain. There might be one in Georgia that's taller or something. I can't remember, but certainly tallest mountain in New England. And um, it's got, as far as I know, it still has the world record for like the highest wind speed recorded on land, but that might have been broken somewhere else, I think, at like 218 miles per hour or something like that. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, so that's, it's like, it's like, it's like known as the world's worst weather. It's just because of the way the weather comes down, I think from Canada and the mountain range and the presidentials, which is the, the name of the range where the white Mount Washington is the way that all comes together. It ends up with like just some crazy, crazy, like hurricane force winds, like, like you'd never believe. So, uh, he was a meteorologist up there for a while and he's a landscape photographer and a hiker. And has all these just amazing um, photos from all over New Hampshire and a lot in the White Mountains. And they're all like natural beauty. It's not like over-processed, hyped up landscape photos um, with like what you see. So common with like light painting or, you know, painting rays of light in and (laughs) like adding a sunset that wasn't there or, you know, making the light look way more dramatic than it actually was or whatever. It's just like actual natural beauty. And he was, so he was one of the first ones that I came across back when I was still learning, you know, so long, like 10 years ago now. Um, That influence must have stuck with you. Yeah, definitely. You know, he's a great photographer and he writes the um, foliage forecast for Yankee Magazine every year. Okay, um, cool. For New England, for New England uh, foliage forecasts. And he, it's like, I don't know, three or four articles maybe in the fall that he'll write. Um, with one coming out in like late summer or something to predict, you know, kind of get it going. Sure. Um, yeah, and he gets on... into the science and the weather of it and tells you why this might be a good year, why it might be a bad year, not just this might be a pretty year. It's like these are the meteor- meteorological, blah, 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 the weather <laughs> pattern reasons for why it might be good, why it might be bad, what's going on. Sure. Um, so I think he'd be a really interesting chat. You know, he could talk about weather for sure, you know be a lot of fun and predicting fall colors which i'm super curious about that yeah yeah he, i mean i think it would be a good one yeah um and then the other guy who was a big influence on me and still is is dana clemens who's um 
I found him because he has a gallery. He's one of the only photographers <laughs> who I know personally who actually runs a gallery. Um, there's a few others that I know, but in New England, um, or like New Hampshire anyway, in Maine, there aren't a ton of photography galleries. And he's got one in uh, Jackson, New Hampshire, not far from Mount Washington, you know, up in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. So I just went into his gallery one day and found him that way. And um, been following him ever since. And we're friends and, you know, a similar idea is Jim Salji. He's a hiker and he goes on all these amazing hikes up there. He used, I don't know if he still does, but he used to use medium format and awesome. hike with that. And then I think he does digital sometimes now. I'm not really sure. But um, all, again, like minimal editing, not over the top, a lot of film stuff, um, right. but beautiful. Like just, he got the real light, you know, you know, he didn't fake it. <laughs> he was, he knew where to be, when to be there and get the good light and get the good composition. And like his compositions and lighting, everything is just really nice. Yeah, it makes it's you beautiful. appreciate it a lot more, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you as know. a photographer, it's like. Oh, especially when you're like new to all this and you're going up to the white mountains because you're a photographer and you're getting excited about taking pictures of places you have yet to hike to and all that. And you, this guy, you see something like that is, is inspiration yes. for that. And you can walk into a photo gallery and walk around and look at all the photos. Like, Oh, look at that place. Look at that place. Look at that place. You know? So it just really makes an impact on me anyway. Yeah. Know? I'm same way. That's yeah. awesome. Cool, man. Well, dude, uh, where can people get a copy of your, of your book? Yeah, if you head to my website, adamwoodworth.com, there's a link on the homepage that'll take you to Amazon, and that's an affiliate link, so I get a tiny kickback if you buy it there. But you can also just search for it, um, Night Sky Photography, Adam Woodworth, on you know Barnes & Noble or um, bookshop.org. Um, anywhere that sells books, um, your local bookstore, certainly support them. They could probably order it uh, if they don't have it. Um, I've even seen it like some library in Massachusetts tagged me on an Instagram post. So they'd got my book in and that's always cool. <laughs> a public library. <laughs> like, wow, I'd never thought I'd have a book in a public library and the ebook is available as well, but I really recommend the paperback book just because, um, it looks so much nicer I'm sure. than the ebook. I mean, the ebook is like got all the same information, all the same photos, but it's just like a boring white background. It's not, you know, it, like any ebook, it just kind of morphs to fit whatever screen you're on. It's not laid out beautifully like the book is. Right, right, um, right, right. So the book is like a total different, you know, um, view of the material. Well, like I said, the book is, uh, it's, I mean, I do a lot of night photography, less, less now than I have in the past, but I mean. Me too, actually. Everything you covered in the book is spot on, in my opinion. So, oh, thanks, man. Well, it's really well done. I mean, it's not like snake oil. It's it's legit stuff that if you read it and go out in the field, you'll get results. So, Yeah, I just try to teach what I teach at the workshops or through whatever training totally. I've done. And then there's, but there's way more in it than I've ever taught before because it was yeah, I bet. To be a book, you know. <laughs> totally. So, yeah, there's stuff I'd never touched on before in there. So um, it's good stuff. Thank you, dude. Awesome, awesome man. Well, this has been a lot of fun and uh, I... I'm I'm really liking this video. The danger is that it makes the conversations last longer because it's like, hey man, let's hang out. <laughs> right, because you're hanging out chatting. Yeah. It's like I should have gotten yeah. my beer. I didn't have a beer. Yeah, man. Was, uh... <laughs> I, I got you cracked one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. man. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank thanks again. This is uh this has been this has been really cool. Cool, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope it I hope we got something usable out of that. Rambling oh, conversation. 
you, you know, there's something for everyone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> thanks, man. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks to Adam for joining me on the podcast this week. As always, I had a great time chatting with you about night photography and our shared values in capturing the night sky. If you're looking to learn all of the insider tips and tricks for night photography, I highly recommend you pick up Adam's book. It really is one of the best I've found for teaching the nuts and bolts of this subgenre. I've provided an Amazon link in the show notes, which will benefit Adam as well. As you know, one of my goals for the podcast is to help others, and by supporting Adam, you can help me do that. Well, before we talk about what's coming up on the show, I wanted to personally thank all of the amazing people that are supporting the podcast over on Patreon at patreon.com slash fstop and listen. I'm especially thankful for our podcast producers who contribute over $20 a month, which ensures that we can continue to provide thoughtful discussions week in and week out. As you know, a high tide rises all ships, so when you can, please reach out and support the people that are supporting the show. I would really appreciate that. Thank you to our newest patrons, Hepe Michael Jensen and Kelly Van Allen. I deeply appreciate your support. Okay, let's talk about what's coming up on the show. I've been busy recording and nailing down new guests for the show, and I hope to cover some new territory. I recently recorded with Krista Makush, a photographer hailing from Nova Scotia. Her icy abstract images are mind-blowing, and our conversation was really fun. We have some other really great guests and episodes coming, including Richard Wong, Carolyn Chang, Joel Truckenbrod, Kath Simmerd, Paul Schmidt, Lisa LaPointe, Mark Denny, Scott Wilson, Zoe Pemintuin, Camille Seaman, Julian Elliott, and many more. We're also going to do a special panel panel on slow photography and a panel on mental health. All right. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. We'll see you next week.